this week on the show, we show you the ACM article. It takes a community and read a bit from it. Uh, we also discuss how you should not use Discord for OSS projects for various reasons. And we discuss some pros and cons there. Unix in the browser tab, which is interesting. Open Indiana releases as well as OmniOS CE are out and more. This week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 439, Browser Tab Unix. Recorded on the 12th of January 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow for various ways how you can support us. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. A fresh episode for you this week. And we are jumping right into the headlines, which is from ACM's Q. It takes a community. Uh, this is a, a discussion with uh, Reynolds Zinn, Wes McKinney, Alan Gates, and Chris McGovern. Um, and, and they write, of the many challenges faced by open source developers, among the most daunting are that some other programmers scarcely ever think about. And that's because most programmers work in settings where other people attend to such matters, people who work in the legal department or human resources, for example. But when there aren't any people like that to turn to, what then? Building a successful open source community depends on many different elements, some of which are familiar to any developer, a clear and present market opportunity, an intelligent approach, efficient coding, and so forth. Just as important are the skills to recruit, to inspire, to mentor, to manage, and to mediate disputes, all without the use of various forms of compensation to reward and provide incentives to contributors. What exactly does it take to pull all that off? We'll let people with track records as leaders of some of the most successful open source projects yet mounted address that from their own experience. Participating in the discussion that follows are Reynold Zinn, Chief Architect of Databricks, best known for his work on Apache Spark. Alan Gates, co-founder of Hortonworks, who helped develop Hadoop, Pig, HCatalog, and Hive while at Yahoo Labs. And Wes McKinney, founder of Ursa Labs, responsible for creating Pandas, uh, Python data analysis library, and currently charged with leading the Apache Arrow effort. On behalf of ACM, Chris McGobbin, a senior applied scientist with Amazon Web Services, helps steer the discussion. And so it starts with Chris McGobbin. Linux was released as open source in 1992. Then came a second wave of open source offerings that emerged through the dot-com era. What's it like at this point to launch an open source project? And Ryan Reynolds says, one big difference is that the whole foundation concept took hold. Linux was basically just a hobby project early on. And in that respect, it was similar to a lot of the other open source projects started back in the 90s. Now we have the Linux Foundation, which has a multi-million dollar annual operating budget. And while the Apache Software Foundation, which is run by volunteers, doesn't have an operating budget, anything like that, it has managed to create a significant brand for itself. One of the reasons a lot of open source projects from, uh, from the late 90s through 2010 in particular started out as foundations was so they'd have a better way to deal with the communities that grew up around those projects 
Over the past few years, that trend has reversed a little, largely thanks to the rise of GitHub. More and more open source projects now launch simply by putting a repository there. Many of the projects that have started out in this way have managed to achieve a fair amount of success without any sort of help from a foundation. I definitely see that as being one of the more important current trends. Chris replies, certainly the field has gotten to be a lot more congested of late, which is to say for every problem, it now seems there is at least a few projects offering potential solutions, but it can be hard sometimes to figure out which of those are actually being actively maintained. Mm. And Alan Gates uh, adds to take another spin of this. Uh, on this, I'd like I'd say that over the past 20 years, we'd also witnessed a growing corporate presence. Even 50 years ago, or 15, 15, <laughs> we're not that old yet. Uh, when Hadoop was launched, there were companies that would get behind certain projects and offer various types of support. By then, lots of people were already using Linux. Companies also started letting it be known that projects they were getting behind so they could promote it as part of their identity. Red Hat was one of the first to be really successful at that. Then some others started to get behind Linux as well. At this point, corporate involvement in open source projects has expanded far beyond that, both in terms of how they use open source and how they organize their development efforts. Uh, Reynolds Zinn says, uh, in a way, open source is already won. Um, and CM continues, I definitely think that's the case. My own experience is that with a startup I helped launch in 2012, we basically went entirely with open source for our framework. That presented a huge shift from anything I'd done before, which had all been pretty much DIY. Is that a trend you still see? Or is it is there now a bit more pushback on open source owing to maintainability issues and things like that? So Alan Gates responds, there's some pushback now. Some companies are starting to say, we really want to be involved with open source, but what's the right way to go about that now? You see different companies trying out different license models, so it sure feels like they want to continue being involved. As Reynolds says, open source has won. But the question is, what's the right form of engagement? And CM continues, this is where commercial software offers an interesting contrast. Vendors such as Microsoft, for example, have forced users to make updates. Do you think the open source world ought to start moving more in that direction? Uh, so Gates says the reality in many open source ecosystems already is that vendors offering commercial products based on open source software tend to provide what are often referred to as downstream builds, which essentially roll together open source releases along with any applicable bug fixes or security patches. And that in a way relies the open or relieves the open source projects themselves from having to shoulder the full support burden. Should a security loophole be found in a piece of open source software, customers who have a relationship with a vendor involved with that project are likely to turn to that vendor for a patched version of the software, primarily because they'll know they'll probably get patched software a lot quicker that way. In fact, that's the reason many organizations entered into contracts with these vendors in the first place. And, and Reynolds in, uh, we'll finish with this one. <laughs> Open source is not necessarily about free software. Instead, it has more to do with the inherent interest companies have in building ecosystems and communities that will help them lower the cost of hiring new employees and then ramping them up. That is, if you have a development environment that's based on some wildly popular open source technology it's not going to be that it's not going to be that all that difficult to find people that meet your requirements uh, and this article continues for quite a while um it's very hard to read out four people when there's only two of you uh, <laughs> so maybe it's a bit confused um i think it's a great piece it's definitely worth visiting when you're thinking about um communities uh, i haven't read all of this yet i'd love to see how they um it, how or if they address the fact that all development tools are now basically using external repositories of open source software for software libraries. And so like NPM is a, a sort of a joke 
but Ruby on Rails started this. But even in proprietary software like um, C++ um, with .NET, there's tons like with is it with NuGet, you're pulling on all these external dependencies and they're open source. Oh yeah, there was uh, wasn't there recently uh, one developer like going rogue and releasing a version six 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 with just stuff that provides messages and garbled yeah stuff and, and that things like work. that happen all the time and that that is open source software right and they've it's interesting they say this we 15 years ago you would start a foundation because you needed someone to pay for the hosting of your svn server and and, and to hold mm. the website and that need went away with with github and then um other services like github but now we have a different thing where things are open source and people don't really know what it means for it to be open source and free software we have all these reactionary licenses. And so I think it's a really good article and I'm, yeah. I'm sure it could spark hours of debate if we ever get to meet in person mm. again. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you know someone who writes open source and then send them a nice thank you note. Uh, so that's always appreciated. Here's another uh, interesting discussion. Uh, it starts off with a PSA, public service announcement. Don't use Discord for open source projects. And we have uh, two articles, uh, one from Jeffrey Paul, uh, Discord is not an acceptable choice for free software projects. The other one from Drew DeVault, don't use Discord for free and open source software. And so they're kind of um, describing the problem at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> in this case, Jeffrey Paul and his blog, yeah. Uh, it's simple, free software projects should not use Discord. This goes equally for any sort of public interest group. Here's why. The TLDR reads standardizing on communications tools like Discord discriminates against and excludes everyone who, either for physical safety reasons or personal preferences, cannot give up their privacy to participate due to its demands for personally identifiable information like IP address, location, and phone number. Okay, so he provides some uh, technical reason for that, like total lack of privacy, since Discord reads, logs, and can censor your private one-to-one -one messages. And they also say that Discord's communication is not end-to-end -end encrypted. It is encrypted only between the individual user and the servers operated by Discord. And then, of course, they can read everything on their servers. Uh, the spying extends to every single message sent and received by anyone, including direct messages between users. And it's impossible to have a private conversation on Discord, as there will always be an unencrypted log of it stored on Discord. And they also provide a section on spying. Discord is spyware, silently logging and tracking every action performed within their app without once asking the user if they consent or not. And then there's social reasons. Privacy is a human right. Use of Discord by a group discriminates almost totally against those who prefer or due to circumstance require privacy for their own personal information, such as IP or the related geolocation. And you cannot sign up for Discord anonymously. And that is one big issue they list here. The, and there's a long list of uh, further reasons and uh, going to a bit of a rant. So you maybe uh, want to skip all, some of these sections, but there's also a moral reason like censorship involved. So these are uh, some interesting things they need to consider. And I, I know when the pandemic started, a lot of students uh, in my university started a Discord channel for each individual lecture or open source project, you know, used this as a meeting place. Um, but of course, there were ways to uh, communicate in a project before Discord was uh, a thing. And, and, and we have a slightly more nuanced view in the second article, which is from Drew DeVault. Uh, Drew writes, six years ago, I wrote a post speaking out against the use of Slack for the instant messaging needs of FOSS projects. In retrospect, that, this article is not very good. And in the years since, another proprietary chat fad has stepped up to bat. Discord, it's time to revisit the discussion. 
Uh, in short, using Discord for your free software, open source software pr project is a very bad idea. Free software matters, and that's why you're writing it after all. Using Discord partitions your community on either side of a walled garden, with one side that's willing to use proprietary Discord client and one side that isn't. It sets up users who are passionate about free software, i.e. your most passionate contributors or potential contributors as second-class citizens. By choosing Discord, you also lock out users with accessibility needs, uh, users who cannot afford new enough hardware. Choosing Discord is a choice that excludes poor and disabled users from your community. Users uh, of novel or unusual operating systems or devices, i.e. innovators and early adopters, are also locked out uh, of the client until Discord seems fit to port it to their platform. Discord also declines service to users in countries under US sanctions, such as Iran. Privacy conscious users will think twice before using Discord to participate in your project or library were outright denied if they rely on Tor or VPNs. Um, and he has some other points, but at the end, Drew says, perceptive readers might have noticed that most of these arguments can be generalized. This article is much the same if we replace Discord with GitHub, for instance, or Twitter or YouTube. If your project depends on proprietary infrastructure, I want you to have a serious discussion with your collaborators about why. What do your choices mean for the long-term success of your project and ecosystem in which it resides? Are you making smart investments or just using tools which are popular or that you're already used to? Uh, if you use GitHub, consider SourceHut or Codeberg. If you use Twitter, consider Mastodon instead. If you use YouTube, uh, try hosting your own videos. If you use Facebook, don't. Your choices matter, choose widely. Um, I think this is really interesting because the, like, the FreeBSD project has a Discord. Um, I don't think any development happens through there, but the FreeBSD project also exists on Telegram, Matrix, IRC, mailing mm -hmm. lists. There's probably like a Usenet news group somewhere that people talk in a language I can't read. Um, so I've never come across it. Uh, and I, am always really torn because I, I don't want to sign up for a new chat service ever, but I'm also in the FreeBSD discord and it's okay. Mm. Um, I can see why you wouldn't want to completely hinge your project on this, but, uh, we, there was an argument recently about making videos with introductory material to try and get developers on board. And one argument against this was saying that like, um, anyone that needs a video probably isn't up to doing this. And I think the much kinder response is you need to go where the people are and mm. um, the, the people that are younger than me are using Discord and they're on TikTok and they're looking at YouTube for material. And even if you don't like it, it's, it's the place your users are going to be and you can pull yeah. them somewhere else. And that's what the FreeBSD Discord seems to be is the people that aren't actually going to be in IRC, but they're in Discord and there's still a community and a place to be. Um, I found it really hard because it's a proprietary service. And I think Drew has a very good point here. If your project infrastructure relies on this, you have a problem. And FreeBSD sort of had this transition when we moved to Git where we could have moved to GitHub, but we didn't because it's important for us to run our own infrastructure. And, and this is different, like it's a really nuanced thing. And it's really easy to just be like, don't do that. It's bad. Um, mm. there's actually a lot more, uh, thought required to actually get to a conclusion yeah I, uh, i'm in a similar uh, like capacity like how many communications channels do i want to open and i need to communicate on right it's it's already quite overwhelming but again as you said more younger people are using these tools that we don't usually use but the young student or the young people in my particular case the students 
they don't know IRC. They haven't used uh, some of the older tools that I was growing up with, let's say. But so there's this always this there's always a new tool around the block. But is everyone jumping on that, or where is everyone going? And what what happens to the old messages in those channels? Do we keep them around? Can we archive them somehow? Mailing lists are good for that, but it's not very modern uh, for for people to sign up with a mailing list and post the message and stuff. <laughs> it's always a trade off, yeah, right? And mailing lists are not are mailing lists are uh, archive stuff, but they don't do it very well. Um, yeah, it's also not real time collaboration if, communication. If if my BSD can submission is accepted i'm going to have to dig back through mailing list archives and i was digging through 2021 and while i can pull the tarball of the freebsd archives from freefall uh searching them is really hard and i can see why people don't just don't want to go near this anymore because it's really difficult to use and it's not discoverable in any way and so yeah these services uh no matter how you like it them or not they kind of made certain things better like irc on steroids but they always come with a trade-off it's a company they need to earn money they also have a uh, have to know certain things about you if you're doing bad stuff there so that's always a trade-off and as you said freebsd is doing a lot of stuff uh, on their own providing the infrastructure and also needing to maintain that which is also tedious and sometimes not very well appreciated by some people but it's a thankless job nevertheless and uh, i think we don't give people enough credit for running these things and keeping them running okay next we have the the news roundup and and first in the news is uh unix in your browser tab because why not run an os on your os um this is on browseix.org, which, yeah, you can look at our show notes. Uh, programs written to run on conventional operating systems typically depend on OS abstractions like processes, pipes, signals, sockets, and a shared file system. Compiling programs into JavaScript, ASM.js, or WebAssembly, with tools like EMScripting or Gopher.js, isn't enough to successfully run many programs client-side, as browsers present a non-traditional runtime environment that lacks OS functionality. Porting these applications to the web currently requires extensive rewriting or paying to host significant portions of code in the cloud. Browsix is our answer to these challenges featuring processes, kernel and system calls, scalability. Uh, it, <laughs> the processes can run unmodified C, C++, Go, and Node.js programs. Uh, run as processes on a, on web workers executing in parallel with the main browser thread. No need to worry about long-running computations blocking event handling or page rendering. By working at the lowest levels of abstraction, Browsex provides shared resources to multiple language runtimes, just as traditional operating systems enable running programs written in a host of languages. And by enabling a large class of programs, including legacy code bases to run in browser, Browsex can free you from the chore of sandboxing and load balancing programs server-side. Uh, and then they have examples of running terminals in web browsers. Um, <laughs> the example here is on unix.bpowers.net. And it, it's a terminal that you can, yep. Yeah. Uh, they have a latex editor, which is, yep. Okay. And a meme generator, which is very web. <laughs> All right. That's uh, always good to have, right? Can't ever have enough memes. 
Yeah, it offers. So yeah, it's an interesting. <laughs> there's a paper about it as well. Yeah, and they had a they had a, a paper in 2017 at Asplos, which I've never heard of, and they also had a Google Summer of Code, um, and you can download it. It's two parts: uh, a kernel written in TypeScript and an extended JavaScript runtime for for languages to run. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, it's. I mean, we're kind of like oh, the old games from from the DOS era can now run in the browser, and I think this is just the next iteration, well, you know, like having the old it, Unix. It's the oldest oldest computer game we know of, Unix. <laughs> exactly right, space <laughs> travel. <laughs> Okay, then we also have other Unix news. Uh, Open Indiana, for example, the hipster 2021.10 release is here. And they mentioned in their announcement that another six months have passed and we are proud to pronounce or announce the release of our 2021.10 snapshot. The images are available at the usual place. As usual, we have automatically received all updates that have been integrated into Illumos Gate. The new images are interesting for people with newer hardware that haven't been supported in the past. There's no necessity to reinstall from newer images as Open Indiana Hipster is a rolling release and it will bring all, ups, all updates with a simple call of PX, pfexec pkg update v. And more details will follow when time permits. So they give more uh, information there. And, and next in the news, we have uh, another a, a Lumos based OS. We have OmniOS CE. Uh, this is their weekly release for the week of the. 13th of December, 2021, uh, this update requires a reboot. Uh, they have some security fixes. So they strengthened Alex exclusion file systems against races. There's bug fixes. They fixed crony. Um, and so now they can keep the system clock fully synchronized. Um, open SSL updates, Python updates, um, the ENA, so the AWS Elastic Network Adapter driver has been introduced. This allows OmniOS to be used in AWS Nitro instances, giving access to instances with better network and disk performance and a serial console. And the Beehive hypervisor has been updated with the latest bits from Illumos. The most notable improvement here is that guests can now make use of SMEP and SMAP processor features if the host supports them. Oh, okay, very good. Seeing the Beehive code to port it to other and update it uh, to other projects as well. Very nice. And we've collected some beastie bits in this episode. The first one is uh, Deb from the FreeBSD Foundation on the Floss Weekly. Uh, you can find that as, an, I think it's a video recording, if I'm not mistaken, an interview. And a podcast. Yeah, and she, she talks about what the FreeBSD Foundation uh, has been done in 2021 and some other uh, interesting bits that you may want to check out. Then we found Jailfox, which is a Bastille BSD template to bootstrap Firefox. Yeah, so it's Firefox in a jail. So whatever happens in your browser stays in the jail and doesn't leave it. So if you maybe want to remove some ads or you know don't want any cookies, you just shut down the jail after you use it and restart it again, and it will be fresh as uh, just installed. And and JT must have been listening to the complaints we made on the last episode, which is weird because we've not submitted the files to him yet. Uh, we have the most recent issue of the FreeBSD Journal and the FreeBSD Foundation website. This is the uh, yes. November, December 2021 issue, and it's uh, focused on storage. And there's articles in this issue on uh, open channel SSD um, um, and I think some other storage stuff, but the, the titles here are not, uh, are not very storage related. Um, there's an article called 27 Years with the Perfect OS, which I actually really want to read because I'm not sure what that's about. 
uh, two articles that I wrote, so I know what they are, and, and one by Benedict. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the letters column uh, from Michael W. Lucas is also worth reading. Very nice. Uh, yeah, so check those out. They're free. And another thing we found is the first call through the 3ESS, which is a YouTube video. Did you watch the YouTube video, Benedict? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I have so, to say. So um, it is at, oh no, I just closed the tab where they called. Um, it is, uh, I think, an archival project called, if you want to load the page YouTube, um, mm. the Connections Museum. Um, and they have an old telephony switch, so a 3ESS switch, which oh. I'm speaking with a lot of confidence, but I don't know what that means. Um, their switch died 10 years ago, um, and so it made its last call in 2013. Um, <laughs> okay. And they have been reverse engineering and rebuilding this for the last 10 years, and the video is 2 minutes 30, and it's definitely worth watching them turn on the switch dial a phone number and have voice going through the switch for the first time and they're just so happy they're so ecstatic it's a <laughs> it's a great video. oh yeah i can imagine <laughs> very cool interesting project and last but not least is openbsd for minimalists uh, on github which gives you installation configuration and management on a thinkpad t480 but should also work for other setups and they provide instructions from installation, configuring after installing is done, like Wi-Fi and sound. Then they talk about window managers, common tasks you want to do, and some troubleshooting. And each of those provides you the commands and the descriptions, what they do and what you can change to your own liking, to the customizing. And that's a good start. Really minimalistic, but it gets you an operating system running and you can do some work in it. Very good. Okay. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the only secure online backup service you can trust. Even paranoids need backups. So Tarsnap works via the command line in the same way as the tar command, except for the tar file ends up getting created in the cloud. But importantly, all of your data is encrypted on your machine before it goes to the cloud, and your encryption key never leaves your machine. So it means no one at Tarsnap, no one at Amazon, and no one anywhere else can access your backups without the key. So as long as you keep the key safe, your data is safe. And Tarsnap also uses Colin's uh, differencing engine, uh, which is able to uh, deduplicate data and avoid having to send data that's already backed up into the cloud again. So it makes it really nice for backing up your laptop, even on the road, uh, because it can make those backups as small as possible. By doing deduplication and compression, and then the encryption, you make sure that you're sending only the stuff that actually changed, and uh, that it's all safe before it goes to the cloud. So check them out, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. We receive feedback and questions on our very popular email uh, that's very <laughs> well known by now. It's feedback at bsdnow.tv and the people who write in typically get answers in an episode like this. And the first is Dale about, uh, oh, he has two ZFS questions. Okay, so here we go. 
He writes, hi guys, first thanks for a great podcast. You're welcome. I recently built a new x86 64-bit server and took the opportunity to jump into ZFS. The old server was a cast of dual-core HP business desktop with a single UFS system drive and another UFS drive for storing backups. The new server is slightly newer cast of, which is a quad-core dual-thread. Okay, installed two one-terabyte SSDs and installed FreeBSD 13 in a root on ZFS uh, configuration, mirroring the two, the two SSDs and no encryption. The server is operated headless. I do not install a GUI desktop or GUI apps. Okay, so far so good. I have two questions related to my now using ZFS. First, if I break booting somehow, how do I boot the system to correct whatever I did wrong? I used to be able to boot from a FreeBSD DVD. Does this still work? For what it's worth, this was usually after I upgraded VirtualBox OSE using PKG and forgot to recompile yeah, the K mod from source, although the specific issue seems to be fixed now. Uh, to answer this, uh, yes, it's certainly possible to go back into the install CD and then mount the pool uh, into an alt root where you can say uh, zpool import and then there's a, I think it's capital R, an alt root where you can say don't mount this on the, well, the CD image, but mount this on slash media or slash MNT. Then you can go through your pool and make some config file changes that maybe broke your booting. So that's certainly possible. And you can also, or should look at into uh, boot environments because BCTL is great where you can have different versions of your operating system. So in case you're doing something dangerous, create a boot environment first. And then if something breaks, you can always jump back to the one you had. And the second question is, how do I recover when one of the SSDs fail? Do I just put in a new SSD? The magic will just happen. That's pretty much the answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, uh, that's, yeah, you identify which SSD failed because if it's a mirror and you pull the other disk, then the mirror is kind of broken. Uh, but if you identify the disk and put it uh, out of its misery and reconnect a new one, if it has at least the same size of the uh, disk you pulled, then ZFS will detect that and figure, ah, here's a new disk now on the controller and we'll start resyncing from the still working disk or still working SSD to the other one. And once that resilver operation it's called, once that is done, both have the same uh, data on it and it will continue to uh, work just like it was. And of course, if the other mirror partner breaks during this resync, then there's no help for you, but that's seldomly the case. You would have really have to have bad luck uh, happening if that was the case. So no worries, it uh, is very resilient. ZFS is uh, good in this regard and don't be afraid to uh, experiment and also use this uh, redundancy here. Thanks again and Merry Christmas. Cheers, Dale. Thank you. Cool. Next up, we have a, a question from Johnny. He has a, a home question. Johnny writes, is there an article or can you give the commands to back up dollar home like on a laptop that has ZFS to a local USB drive, the laptop doesn't have access to uh, on-premises backup server, granted RRD backup to Tarsnap, but would like to automatically save that Tarsnap, Tarsnap backup and maybe use more to a USB drive and maybe dedupe there as well. Would it be as simple to copy the tar over? Is there a better way to backup one's home to a USB drive? My tar snap is only critical data, but I would like to back up the entire home directory to a local USB drive. I can tar it up and copy to the USB drive, but it doesn't seem very efficient since it takes forever plus plus to overwrite the existing tar. I would like to just update what's there that has changed. Maybe some ZFS magic or something would be in order. 
I don't need to back up the entire system, just etc, other configs, home. This is not a server, just a laptop for local use. Any help would be much appreciated. Ah, so what you do there is if you have your home on a separate uh, ZFS data set, then you can make a snapshot of that data set, ZFS snap or ZFS snapshot, uh, pool name, and then the path to your data set name, and then add the add character, like in an email address. And after the add, there's the name of your backup, like call it backup one. And that snapshot you can copy. It's, it's a file, basically. It's part of the file system. Uh, and either copy it manually with CP or rsync, whatever you have, or you do ZFS send where uh, it uh, serializes this data and uh, sends it to a different drive. You could also send it to a um, to a file, and this file contains all the information needed to restore this uh, data set, the home in this case, uh, on another pool. And if you do file on this file then it shows you it's a zfs snapshot and that can be restored uh, using the reverse you can use zfs receive or rcv recv and pipe the or redirect the file into it the, the snapshot and then it will apply this back on the on another pool and put it in the same directory or the same data set path and then you have your home directory on a different file so you can transfer this uh, you just redirect it to a file and then copy this file to a USB drive and that is your backup. There is also an incremental backup, like if you want to have only the deltas that happened between the last time you accessed your home directory, then there's uh, a nice uh, way to do incremental snapshots. And for that, I refer you to the FreeBSD handbook where they describe these things or uh, ZFS mastery book from Michael W. Lucas and Alan. Uh, they, they're still relevant. And they show you how to do this in an incremental way, like in a cron job every hour, every minute, if you need. And so that way you keep an external yeah, backup. And this is a really common way to do backups. And so there are loads of automation tools written that basically just do this under the hood, but make it much easier to do. Yeah. And I That's what I have. Do you know what it's called? Or have you just written your own? Um, it's not Time Machine. I was just writing an article about that in the, the FreeBSD Journal. Um, ZFS Snap is one from ports, where it's basically um, creating or naming the data sets uh, by the time of date and time of day. And so it will do a grandfather, father, child uh, scheme and rolls back the, the daily snapshots into weekly ones and the weekly ones into monthly, the monthlies into yearlies and so on. And that's where you basically say how often you want these snapshots to be taken, like every 10 minutes, every 15 minutes every five minutes, whatever, and it will automatically roll these into uh, all the snapshots and remove the ones that are in between. Okay, hopefully that helps you backing up your system, which is actually a good idea. And next up is Mike with a GhostBSD in a virtual machine question. Oh, that sounds interesting. This goes like the following. Howdy, I'm new to the show and to BSD. That's okay, welcome. So I apologize if my questions are lame, but here I go anyway. Nah, there are no lame questions. The only lame questions are the ones we don't get and we have nothing to put into this <laughs> section. <laughs> when building a GhostBSD VM in Word Manager, the keyboard and mouse inputs do not work. Is there a good way around this? I've seen that on hardware you are supposed to enable legacy support, but there's only the one input in Word Manager. By way of a more general question, I have seen it said that the BSD operating systems are more made for developers. Not necessarily. I'm enjoying messing around with OpenBSD, but would I need any actual developer skills if I want to use it for a web server or something? No, not 
thanks again and hope you get all those questions you were asking for. Excellent. Benedict, how old were you when you started messing around with BSD? Uh, I was... Oh, I was a student because, uh, again, I started with uh, Linux and then installed BSD in parallel. And then after a while, oh, I haven't booted this Linux system in a while. And so I switched completely to the to FreeBSD in my case. So I'm not like uh, the young convert in like my teen years. <laughs> it took me a while. Yeah, I mean, I was, what, <laughs> um, 15 when I started messing with BSD? I, I think... Uh, all you need to use these operating systems is the ability to read the documentation. And so if it's if it's not, an, not available in a language you can read, you are a bit stuck. Um, yeah. And the desire to do it. And the desire to do some scary things like partition a hard drive. But the, these platforms have only gotten easier to use in the last 15 years. Um, and they weren't particularly hard to set up in 2005 so yeah no you can do it you don't need to be a developer at all yeah way back when we needed to compile kernels and that's where scary messages from compiles were scrolling over the screen but nowadays it's very uh i think distant from even, that even for me that was like on the edge of things i mean i had to build linux kernels for the wi-fi in my my, my macbook but mm, with extra but options other than that like it, it really wasn't that common to have to build your own kernel um, it's not common to have to build your own kernel in FreeBSD. We have good dynamic. No, nowadays it's very... I, I haven't done this in like five years at least. And if you're building a kernel for a driver you just need to turn on, you just copy the commands from the from, from the man pages in the handbook and then you trust that it'll work and it's normally okay. Yeah. But boot environments make things safe. So I, I think it'd be okay. I think I think anyone could do this as long as you want to do it. Mm -hmm. I think if you're being bullied into doing it, you wouldn't enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, be curious and willing to read and learn and ask questions. And so that way, you there are, there are many FreeBSD desktop users who've probably never seen any line of source code if they're not developers themselves. So you can use it as a, an email or a web browsing station perfectly fine without any contact with developer stuff. What about the Vert Manager issue? I've never used Vert Manager. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I only remember that there were some weird issues where the mouse pointer is not exactly where it's on the screen where it's it's a bit of, uh, off cool yeah um but that's um uh, switching to actually like uh, an active or an actual pointing device like a wacom pen if you remember those uh that probably solves it but this issue is about keyboard and mouse not working uh, maybe it needs a special config file where you configure those but t typically word manager should be able to detect and find them um, try a different BSD, maybe uh, what are you using OpenBSD? Maybe FreeBSD is better at that. Uh, but if it's a problem with Word Manager, then I guess the Word Manager folks will be able to help you there. They also have a mailing list for questions like these because I think you're not the first person running uh, GhostBSD in a VM. Or go to GhostBSD's uh, documentation or mailing list or help forums, whatever they have, and ask there or search their uh, help. Maybe someone else has had this problem already okay yeah so now that we know no one needs to be a developer to be a happy freebsd user we should uh <laughs> close this episode for good for today and thank you for listening as always and we'll be back with another episode next week for you